welcome to episode 11 of the Radio Omniglot podcast. My name is Simon Ager, and in this episode I will discuss the distinction between less and fewer, and other commonly held beliefs about English grammar and usage. I will investigate where these rules or practices originated, and try and find out who is responsible for them. Incidentally, the tune you just heard is one I wrote back in December 2017 entitled The Salmon Sleep, or Naid er Eog. Let us start with less and fewer. The word less has been in English for a very long time. Its first recorded use in writing was back in the 9th century, when it was used to mean a smaller amount of. From the 11th century, it was used to mean smaller or lesser as a comparative form of little and by the 14th century it was being used to mean a smaller amount of, or not as much as. It comes from the Old English les, meaning less, from the Proto-Germanic leses. The word fewer comes from few, from the Middle English fewer, which meant few, little, not many, or small, or little, which came from the Old English feau, meaning few, from the Proto-Germanic fauas, meaning few, from the Proto-Indo-European pale, meaning few or small. So fewer in modern English is used to mean a smaller number of something, and generally is used before plural, countable things, for example, fewer words, fewer letters. In 1770, a certain gentleman named Robert Baker published a book entitled Reflections on the English Language in the Nature of Vaugelas' Reflections on the French, being a detection of many improper expressions used in conversation, and of many others to be found in authors. Quite a snappy title, don't you think? And in this book he wrote about the word less, of which he said, This word is most commonly used in speaking of a number, where I should think fewer would do better. No fewer than a hundred appears to me not only more elegant than no less than a hundred, but more strictly proper. You can see a reproduction of the original text on the show notes at omnigot.com slash radio. So this was the opinion of one particular gentleman who believed his opinions mattered because he wrote them down in a book. Since then, it's become a rule of standard English that fewer should be used with count nouns and less should be used with uncountable nouns or must nouns, which is why some people get very annoyed when they see signs in supermarkets saying things like 10 items or less. They say it should be fewer because the items are countable. But is there any ambiguity here? Does anybody misunderstand this sign? Whether it says less or fewer, is purely a matter of style, and it's based on the opinion of this guy back in the 18th century. And who was he? Well, I haven't been able to find out anything about his background. Was he a linguist? Had he studied language? There's no reason why a thousand years of usage should be overturned or changed just because he said, oh, I think it's more elegant and strictly proper to use fewer in certain circumstances where most people just use less anyway. I know some of you will be saying, well, yes, it does matter. If we don't stick to the rules of grammar, then all chaos will break loose. But where do those rules come from? What is grammar? Well, prescriptivists and pedants might point out that grammar is a set of rules that you find in a grammar book, and that language in its spoken and written form should adhere to those rules. 
And anybody who uses language that doesn't adhere to those rules is wrong and mistaken and speaking incorrectly and should be corrected. However, the kind of things that some people get upset and irritated about in language are often quite arbitrary and based on opinions of people like Robert Baker. If you look at how people actually use language and words, you will find quite often what is written in grammar books is not necessarily true. For example, in the corpus of global web-based English, the word less is used far more than the word fewer. There are nearly 700,000 mentions of the word less and only 50,000 of the word fewer. The phrase or less is used 44,000 times, while or fewer is only used 1,229 times, and less than is used over 170,000 times, while fewer than is used only 8,881 times. Then if you look at the Google corpus of English, this is specifically American English, in books published between the 18th and 20th centuries, the word less is used over 55 million times, while the word fewer is used just under 3 million times. Or less is used nearly 7 million times, or fewer, just 100,000 times. Less than, used over 13 million times, and fewer than, only just under 600,000 times. This is perhaps not conclusive evidence, but it's a clear indication that fewer is used a lot less than less. You may be advised, when writing formally in English, not to split your infinitives, which would be sticking something between the to and the verb. For example, to not split your infinitives would be a split infinitive. To boldly go where no man has gone before is the most famous split infinitive. And pedants might tell you it should be to go boldly where no man has gone before, which doesn't sound quite as natural. So who is responsible for this idea? Well, back in 1866, Henry Alford, the Dean of Canterbury, wrote a book entitled A Plea for the Queen's English, Three Notes on Speaking and Spelling, in which he wrote, a correspondent states as his own usage and defends the insertion of an adverb between the sign of the infinitive mood and the verb. He gives us an instance to scientifically illustrate, but surely this is a practice unknown to English speakers and writers. It seems to me that we ever regard the two of the infinitive as inseparable from its verb, and when we have already a choice between two forms of expression, scientifically to illustrate and to illustrate scientifically, there seems no good reason for flying in the face of common usage. Interesting that he appeals to common usage in this case, when to scientifically illustrate sounds perfectly natural to most people, and is definitely in common usage these days, even if it wasn't back in the 19th century. Since then, people have decided that splitting infinitives is wrong in formal written English, and try to avoid it. However, it is not wrong in informal written and spoken English, and is not something you need to worry about too much. And now it's time for another tune. This is the kettle, a tekesh, a tune I wrote in February 2018 for no particular reason, played on the Cavakinu.
is a commonly held belief that it is wrong to end a sentence with a preposition. A preposition is a little word like at, to, on, with, from, and so on. So, for example, instead of saying, what are you looking at? In very formal written English, you might say, at what are you looking? Or, that's the house I live in. Instead of saying that, you would say, that's the house in which I live. Or, she's the one I want to talk to, would become, she's the one with whom I want to talk. And if you're writing a job application or a very formal written document, then it is best to avoid placing prepositions at the end of sentences, because people would judge you for that and say, oh, you've got poor grammar because you do this. And I believe this is a an important grammatical rule, and therefore you can't be a good applicant for this job or whatever. But everywhere else, it's completely fine to do so. The person generally regarded as responsible for formulating this rule was the Right Reverend Robert Loth, Lord Bishop of Oxford, who in 1763 published a book entitled A Short Introduction to English Grammar with Critical Notes, in which he wrote, The preposition is often separated from the relative which it governs and joined to a verb at the end of the sentence or of some member of it as Horace is an author whom I am much delighted with. The world is too well bred to shock authors with a truth, which generally their booksellers are the first that inform them of. This is an idiom which our language is strongly inclined to. It prevails in common conversation and suits very well with the familiar style in writing. But the placing of the preposition before the relative is more graceful as well as more perspicuous and agrees much better with the solemn and elevated style. So he didn't say you should never put a preposition at the end of a sentence, but just that if you're writing in a solemn and elevated style, it is more graceful and perspicuous to do so. And since then it's become a rule of formal grammar that you should never end a sentence with a preposition, otherwise the world will come to an end or something. Another commonly held belief is that two negatives make a positive and while this may be the case in mathematics, in language, except in formal written language, it certainly isn't the case. Two negatives just emphasise the negativity of a statement. So if you say, I never saw nothing, you're not saying, I saw something, you're saying, you really didn't see anything at all. But in formal written English, you would have to say something like, I didn't see anything, which doesn't quite have the impact of, I never saw nothing. And sometimes you get even more negatives in a row. I ain't never heard nothing about nobody, no way. That would be a quadruple negative, I think. So this belief stems from the work of two authors, one Robert Loaf, who we've already heard from, in the 1794 edition of his A Short Introduction to English Grammar with Critical Notes. He wrote that two negatives in English destroy one another, or are equivalent to an affirmative. But before then, in 1711, in a book entitled an essay towards a practical English grammar, describing the genius and nature of the English tongue, giving likewise a rational and plain account of grammar in general, with a familiar explanation of its terms. It was James Greenwood, the Sir Master, not sure what that means, of St Paul's School, which I think is in London. He wrote, two negatives, or two adverbs of denying, do in English affirm. And since then it's become a standard rule that in formal English you should not use two negatives together. And now it's time for another tune. This is The Swellies, or Pushkeris, the tune I wrote back in February 2018. <laughs> 
people believe that these rules we've been discussing are important, it's a good idea to observe them when you're writing in a formal style. Otherwise, just ignore them or break them and don't worry about them. Grammar is a lot more than a few arbitrary rules like this. It's all about the way you put your words together, any changes you make to those words to show what role they play in the sentence and so on. Most children have a pretty good grasp of the grammar of their native language or languages by the time they start school, if not before. Although there may be some aspects of more formal language that take a bit longer to acquire, especially reading and writing. When learning a new language, it does take time to become familiar with all the structures and grammatical patterns. But the more you use the language, the more you hear it and speak it and read it and write it, the more you become familiar with how it works how the words go together into sentences, how you need to change them in various circumstances, and over time this will become automatic. You won't need to think about it, it will just happen. It takes longer if the language has a very different structure to your native language. So if you're a native speaker of English, for example, and you're learning Japanese, you have to get used to a very different word order, where the verbs go at the end of the sentences. But with enough time and practice, you can get used to this and other aspects of different languages. I think that's enough for now. I hope you found this episode interesting. You can find notes on this episode and others at omnigot.com slash radio. You can leave comments there. You can contact me at feedback at omnigot.com. If you would like to suggest any topics for future episodes, please do so. As this is my first podcast of 2019, I would like to wish you a happy new year. Bluzine with that. Bonane. Felicia Novan Yarum. Sinian Quayla. Feliz Año Nuevo. Frost Norcia. Sazizino. Mmm. And so on in many other languages. So thank you for listening and goodbye.